through their music. Out of the Box with Joey Watson on FBI 94.5. Hello, FBI Radio listener. Many greetings from the FBI Radio Bunker. You are listening to Out of the Box. Every Thursday, I roll through the records and stories of one person and populate the airwaves with the consequence. Today, from The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, from Beyonce's Twitter followers, from the number 11 spot on Fortune Magazine's list of the 50 greatest world leaders, but most importantly, from the front line of the Black Lives Matter movement, I am joined by DeRay McKesson. <laughs> That's him right there. When protests broke out on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, in opposition to police violence against African Americans and other minorities, DeRay left a comfortable job as a school administrator and took up the cause of chronicling the resistance via Twitter. Not long after he has become one of Black Lives, the Black Lives Matters movement's most high-profile activists, traveling the world with a cautious vision of truth and justice. It is that vision and his recently published collection of essays on the other side of freedom that brings DeRay to Australia and to my enormous fortune and privilege onto this show out of the box. DeRay, welcome. So good to be here. Duray, for an Australian uh, who might not be familiar with the various high-profile cases that culminated in the Black Lives Matter movement, can you start by taking me through what happened to Mike Brown, that kid Mike Brown, in August of 2014? Yes, in August 9, 2014, Mike Brown was walking uh, in the neighborhood where his grandmother lived. Police officers stopped him. Uh, as a result of the stop, he was shot and killed. Uh, his body left in the street for four and a half hours. People immediately came outside and questioned why the police killed him at all and then why his body stayed in the street. That led to the protest because the police came out in such incredible force trying to get the crowd to disperse that literally was just there mourning the death of a teenager. And the protest lasted for 400 days. Where were you when you found out about the death of Mike Brown? I think I was at work when I found out that there was a kid killed in St. Louis. And I was sitting on my couch on August 16th. It was a Saturday. And I was like, I was watching the news. It was like early in the morning. It was like one o'clock. And I saw what was happening on Twitter. And I saw what was happening on TV. On TV, it looked like the protesters were wild. On Twitter, it looked like the police were wild. And I was like, you know, I don't really know what's happening. But there was like this all call for people to come and help. And I was like, you know what? The least I can do is go down for the weekend. I'll like go down for the weekend. I'll like do my part. That Friday before, the day before, there was a national moment of silence that somebody had organized, Feminista Jones on Twitter. She had organized a national moment of silence on Twitter uh, in person, though. So all across the country, people got together to have a moment of silence about Mike Brown and other people. I went to that in Minneapolis, like just because. And the next day I got in my car and went to... uh, and went to St. Louis and, and never looked back. The second night I was in St. Louis was the first night that I was tear gassed. And I was like, this is wild. You know, I'll do whatever I can to make sure nobody has to experience this. Well, what is tear gassing? What happens when you get tear gassed? So tear gas is uh, naturally colorless. So when you see that smoke, that's like artificially added. And I say that because they can shoot so much tear gas that once the smoke dissipates, like the, it's, the tear gas is still in the air. So you walk and it just hits you. It's sort of like, um, it's like a menthol feeling. So you imagine if there's like a peppermint, some pepperminty thing, like all over your face, like that menthol feeling, which doesn't necessarily hurt just standing still. But the moment like air hits it, your like face is stinging and burning tear gas uh, sticks to all your clothes. You have to like wash your clothes a ton of times. Uh, we were tear gas, rubber spray, shot with rubber bullets, like a whole host of things uh, that lasted a long time. You, you mentioned um, the five second rule. 
Can you take me through that, how, how that worked in practice? You're on the street for 400 days. You're not allowed to stand still for at least the first three months of that. Um, police are tear gassing you and I assume doing a lot worse than that as well in response to what is basically a, a peaceful protest. What, what was it like? What was it like being out there? Yeah, I think it was a while. You know, it's like, it's hard. It's like, it feels like one of those things where as much as any of us who are present will try to explain it that I don't know if we will ever accurately convey for people like how wild it was to be out in the street all night and uh, to have been arrested. So many people arrested. So many people were afraid. You know, I remember the first night that I got tear gas. It was like we had to disperse. They chased us like through neighborhoods. Like it was just it was truly a wild time. And then the protests spread across the country. But the way the five-second rule worked is that there's a couple components. It was like, not only did we have to stand still, but you couldn't pace. So you couldn't, like, just sort of walk up and down, like, a very small part of a corner. And you couldn't, like, go to one place and come back and forth. So you had to essentially, like, keep walking. And the police thought that uh, that was going to make us go home. They were like, we're going to do this. We're going to tire them out because the rule was such a ridiculous thing. Uh, and, and really, it just, like hardened our resolve we were like you know what if we gotta walk y'all gotta walk so we walked and it forced them to have to follow us so they were pissed because they had to be out all night walking in the most random places uh but it was truly wild and the protest ferguson is geographically pretty small the protest covered the whole region because the police killed mike brown as you know then they killed kajim powell nine days later most people don't know kajim's name unless you were there and then they went on to kill 10 more people in the region like while we were in the street so uh, the protest started definitely because of Mike Brown. Uh, the protest spread across the country because of Mike Brown's death. They continued because the problem continued. Ferguson, I guess, is one of those uh, rare instances uh, where the whole world is looking um, as resistance happens in real time in one place. I think of you know Hong Kong now. Um, did, did you feel in the moment like you were making change happen? Was that was that real to you, or is that something that um, became evident after the fact? I think it became evident. We we knew that people cared. We certainly knew it was on the news. I think we didn't know that the world was watching in the way that I now know the world had watched. I think that that was actually to our benefit in some ways. I think that there was like this incredible sense of tunnel vision we had that sort of kept us laser focused on what was in front of us that allowed the protest to last for 400 days. Uh, now I realize that people have watched everything. People knew everything. And, and you know, it was, I, I think about the protest in St. Louis as a phenomenon. It was like, we couldn't have planned it to be like this. It's like, you think about 2014 on the internet, on Twitter specifically, which is where we did most of the work of organ of organizing people and information, it's like there was it was just 140 characters on Twitter back then. Now it's 280, as you know. There was no Twitter video, so that didn't exist. Like there were no videos of things happening. There was no live streaming on Twitter. Like that wasn't a thing. Uh, there was no Facebook Live. There were no stories. There was no Instagram Live. Like, it was very sort of what we would even say in 2019, like old school, you know? So the only video platform we could use was uh, Vine. And if you remember Vine, it was six-second video. So literally, we would take a video on our phone of something happened, like the police hit somebody, did something. We would run away from whatever the problem was. We'd run to the back. And we put the video up to our ears to try and find like the best six seconds to post. Then we post the six seconds and then go back. And it was wild, you know, like that's like a, now people, we say that to people and they're like, I can't believe you did that. But that was like all we, that was 
all we had, you know? Periscope, Twitter didn't buy Periscope until like a year later. So by then we'd already, you know, like we'd already been in the street for a year. How would you change, 400 days is a long time to do anything um, continuously like that, especially something that's so um, emotionally involved. How would you change personally by the end? What, 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 I mean, obviously your life was very different, but beyond that. I think, uh, you know, I feel like I, I still feel like I'm pretty close to it and like need probably some time away from talking about the protests to really process how I've changed. But I think there are a few things. One is that I think our uh, ability to work in deep, deep uncertainty was just different. You know, like there were nights where I slept in driveways, I slept in vans, you know, we didn't know where we would sleep, like... And before then, I would have, that would have been a real, I would have like, I don't know, that would have really shaken my sense of stability. Whereas like when we were doing it, it was like, I have a backpack and I have a little bit of cash and like, we'll figure it out. You know, I think I also saw like the, I always believed in the goodness of people, but I saw it like there were so many people who had no reason to help. Like, no, they just didn't have a reason necessarily to be kind and they create a space for us. I think about like one day I was in, I was in Atlanta for something and uh, like the flights got canceled. So I was going to have to sleep in the airport. So I tweet like I'm going to have to sleep in the airport. A guy who I now am friends with, he's like, I'm in Atlanta. You can come sleep on our couch. Like we just had a kid, but like, please stay over. And like, he's a good friend. And like, I went, you know, like it was so many things like that, that just like, so my belief in people and like the goodness of people uh, affirmed. I think I also learned like how people change in crises is that like, you know, we all met each other in the middle of like the wildest thing we'd ever done ever. And just like how you plan for like a safe house or how you plan for uh, being tear gas or preppers, like just how we plan those things. I know much better than I did before. It's one of the beautiful things about seeing the Hong Kong protesters is that some of it from a strategy perspective, I'm like, that was brilliant, you know, because it's like we were there. We were also people having to figure out like, how do we move huge crowds of people? How do we uh, make sure that bad actors don't get airtime. Like, how do we, like, those strategy things. We didn't have any formal training in, but had to figure it out, you know? Uh, and I'm proud of all of us. Well, on that note, let's go to our first track. Duray, what do you want to play off, off the top and, and why? We're going to play Mood Forever by Beyonce. And what, what, what does this song mean to you? I just love it because it is, it is about uh, sort of standing in your power and and just being proud of like what you bring and, and your energy and I, when I look back at the protests at the began a movement I'm proud of all of the energy that we had you know like we were such a mood out there like fighting in a way that people told us was unacceptable but we knew it's right I know my enemy pray on me so pray for me tick tick wait on it I'm keeping down my body count I'm finessing like a trap bounce, a trap bounce, yeah. Cause every day above town is a blessing. I done leveled up now, few panoramic. None of my fears can't go where I'm headed. Had to cut them loose, now I'm loose, break the living, yeah. I'm about to flood on the, flood on the center. It rain it down, they're going for go move to No, no, center. You can dim my life. Cause when we walk up in the club, I need them sirens going off. Then we can look up in the sky. I got my cup up to the heavens Another night I won't remember I promise this my move forever I promise this my move forever, ever, ever 
heard that. That's the sound of the price going up. <laughs> Forever and ever, ever and never, ever at the Saxon Madiba Suite. Like Mandela, bumping fella on the Puma chair. Like we from Lagos, man, Samosa reincarnated. We on our levels, that's a billy, a thousand milli. First one to see a B out these housing buildings. I be feeling like Prince in 84, Mike in 79, Biggie in 97, 94, Nas, Ali, Kumbaya, no Kumbaya, just give me the Somali, I'm on Latage, helmet on a jet ski. You know the vibes hit my head, forget I'm me. Oh my God, without the God in the XY. I'm afraid the whole game will be colonized. The marathon will be televised for NRP. The true kings don't die, we multiply. Peace. I'm so unbothered, I'm so unbothered Y'all be so pressed while I'm raising daughters Sons of empires, y'all make me chuckle Stay in your struggle, crystal blue water Pina colada in, you stay Ramada in My baby father, bloodline Rwanda Why would you try me, why would you bother I am Beyonce, Giselle knows Kata I am the Nala, sister Naruba Oshun Queen Chiba, I am the mother Honk on my gold chain, I sold my whole chain I be like so full, I am a whole mood <laughs> When we walk up in the club, I need the sirens going off. And we can look up to the sky. And since we cry, let us know that we alive. Yeah, yeah. I give them goosebumps every time. I throw up my diamond. Together we big time. And the children are our reminder. I got my cup of two. From the Lion King reboot, Mood Forever, that is Beyonce, Childish Gambino, and Jay-Z in one track, Would You Believe It? The song was brought onto Out of the Box by one of the highest profile activists of the Black Lives Matter movement, DeRay McKesson. We are live on FBI Radio and on podcast. DeRay, we've spoken a bit about activism um, from uh, outside the system but you're a unique form of change maker and that you've chosen direct methods as well. You've sat down with Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, I'm sure many more uh, since. Can you run run me through from the perspective of a change maker, how those meetings go? Is, is there a script that you run through or what happens when you sit down with someone in a position of power or in a potential position of power? So we think about like, what does it mean to have a seat at the table, right? And mindful that the seats... Of, at the tables of the biggest institutions and the biggest places, 
when we get a seat at those tables, it is often, if not always, a result of pressure. So the only way we were able to meet with Obama or Bernie or Hillary, any of these people, was because the protests forced them to have a conversation. And always mindful when we sit at the table that our responsibility is to bring the energy that created the seat in the first place. So we sat down with all of them. It was about saying that like it was challenge, it was um, questioning, it was pushing that created the need for this at all. And like we fill, we fill that in. And we don't do it alone, but we do it as best as we can. So when I think about Obama and Bernie, Hillary, Kamala, anybody, we're walking into the room saying like, here are the demands that people have. Here is what you can do at the end of your power to actually do good for people. So with Obama, it was about saying the federal government can do more or something. You know, they had done very little about police, that they could do something, you know, and it was about bringing that energy and being unapologetic about it with the campaigns in 2016. Uh, you know, mass incarceration was just becoming a thing that people sort of openly talked about. The police certainly wanted a thing people talked about. So we were sort of pushing them on that, like saying, what are the concrete plans? Show us. And no script. We were very prepared. So what we did with Hillary, when we were with Hillary the first time, there was no platform. Like she just didn't have a platform. So what we do is that we create a platform on the back end of all of the statements that she had made publicly. So when we walked into the room, everybody had been briefed. We'd had a call before, uh, not telling people what they needed to ask, ask whatever you want to ask. Like that's the spirit of the protest. Like we trust you, which is why you're in the room. But we do want to make sure that everybody is the same set of facts. So when you press her, you're not like pressing her about something she didn't say, you know? So we did those things. Uh, but it was it was about saying that, like, you know, some of the interpersonal stuff we'll never agree on. And our role isn't to convince anybody in the movement that, like, Hillary is a good person. I'm not, like, the arbiter of that. I can't convince you Bernie's a good person. Like, this is not about people's personhood. This is about, like, what are their values and beliefs? And we can get that in a meeting. Uh, and that was important. What is the gender? Could you um, kind of stipulate it? Because I know that Black Lives Matter has now kind of developed into having a much more specific policy, um, a set of policy outcomes that you are agitating for. And obviously this is something that's coming out of this meeting. I know it's connected to this idea of Ground Zero, which is the, the organization. Campaign Zero? Campaign Zero. Yeah, so the movement's a big space, right? And just like in the civil rights movement, there's not one thing that is the civil rights movement, right? So we think about that with Black Lives Matter as an idea and as a movement born out of the street, not born out of an institution. One, two, three people didn't begin a movement, like people did, right? When I think about the issues that I'm most focused on, it's like, how do we just end the violence of the police, right? Knowing that the violence of the police exists in a larger context around mass incarceration, around identity politics, around a host of uh, disinvestments that the government has refused to make for people of color and marginalized people, right? So, so much of it is like, the police stuff is what got people on the street. It's the only issue that kept people on the street. Like the police are killing people, so much of the issue. Uh, it's also like, how do we stop? You know, when people think about abolition, they always think about the end of prisons and jails. And that is important. That is like a key part of it. But abolition is also about the conditions that lead to people feeling like jails and prisons are necessary in the first place. So abolition is as much about the end of prisons and jails as it is about the end of poverty, homelessness, addiction, uh, the school to prison pipeline, like all of those things are intertwined. So there's a broad mandate for people who I think identify as activists, especially around racial justice in this moment. So uh, in, in that sense, the agenda that you've chosen to to spearhead, the broad-based thing to get behind is police violence. Why, why is that the... Um, 
the the first why is that the first thing that you're using to 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 push for all those other changes that you talk about some of which are much more radical as well yeah so i think that the so this is like a both and i spend more of my time on policing uh, and i spend time on like voting rights and mass incarceration too but more time on policing you know i'm mindful that the issue of police is first the only thing that kept people on the street it wasn't all this other stuff did not keep people in the street for 400 days it didn't it was interesting it is important uh, but I'm mindful that like the thing that got people to like come out and fight every single night was the issue of the police because the police continue to inflict so much damage on people's lives. The second is that the police are really interesting when we think about all the civil rights work in America because uh, they're they're the one institution that largely remains the same. So you think about the 60s, you think about the 50s, you think about all the things they fought for. They got a lot of wins, not all the wins, but a lot. So you think about voting, housing, women's rights. Uh, education, like ton of wins. They also fought against the police. You think about those iconic photos of Bull Connor using the water hose on people in the South. Like you think about those photos of them sticking dogs on people. That is happening today, right? Like the tactics are the same. The police have largely remained unchanged. If anything, they've gotten more power, more protection since then, not less, right? So when I think about the police, they sometimes get forgotten in the larger landscape of these issues because they have largely remained unchanged. So I suppose that some of the um, concessions are are, uh, quieter there, um, things that would be digestible politically for in those sorts of contexts, in those meetings. And policing makes a lot of of sense in in that regard. Um, But how, how, in terms of your overall vision of hope, how far would you push it? I mean, uh, you don't necessarily refer to yourself as a radical, but um, are there radical elements to your agenda? Yeah, I think I sort of push on this idea of like, what is radical? Because I'm not sure that that like framing serves our work. I think it's not radical to be like the police shouldn't kill people, you know, like the other side would be like, wow, that's so dray, like one step changed it it's like well i think that's sort of basic right i think that like we should live in a world where like the police the people that say that they protect you don't shoot you like i think that that's like sort of a basic idea sure but what about an agenda that would call for the um ultimate abolition of the police itself which um I know, I guess, I guess, fringe in some parts, but certainly respected. Like, would you speak to that, for example? Yeah, I just don't. Yeah, I can speak to it. I just don't accept this idea of like, I think radical posits it as like some thing off in the either that like is like this is so intense in this small note, like this, there's a small community of people. And, da, da, and like, I think that, you know, you think about, uh, you think about, the best classrooms don't need armed guards in the middle of the classroom for there to be like a good culture, right? Like the best, the safest neighborhoods in Australia aren't full of police. You know what they're full of? Resources, right? We actually like have models already where the police are not rampant and there's not like, you know, crime every two seconds, right? So we are mindful that the safest places aren't places with police. The safest places are places with more resources. That's not like a I push on this idea that that's like somehow like a radical notion. I think that we can live in a world where we don't need armed people uh, enforcing what we consider to be rules to make everybody safe. And I think that affluent communities are a great example that that uh, can happen. You know, I think it's not even at home when people talk about socialism, it's like, you know, I don't care what you call it, but I don't think it's like a radical idea to be that to say that every kid should have breakfast, lunch and dinner. Right. Like that's like or like everybody has health care should not be something that shocks you as like, whoa, you're trying to upend the system. It's like, eh. I think that if you have like a toothache, we should probably figure out how to like get you to, a, you know, like 
you shouldn't die because you can't afford insulin when we can produce insulin at like a dollar. You know what I mean? I'm going to um, push you back towards DJing now. Um, what, do, what do we want to play for inside of political activism, Dre? We're going to play Act Up by City Girls just because this is like such a in-your-face, uh, make-it-happen song. Real ass bitch, give a fuck about a nigga. Big Birkin bag, hold five, six figures. Stripes on my ass, so he call his pussy tigger. Fucking on his scamming ass, rich ass nigga. Same group of bitches, ain't no ass in the picture. Drop a couple rights, watch his ass get bigger. Drinking on looking, I'm looking at your nigga. If it's funny, why eat? You can eat it like a snicker. I ain't got time for you fake ass hoes. Talking all loud in them fake ass clothes. Fake ass shoes, match that fake ass coat. I'm the realest bitch ever see you snake ass hoes. Act up, you could get smashed up. Act up, you could get smashed up. Act up, you could get smashed up. Dirty ass, yes, baby girl, you need to back up. It's your Miami and I came to run my sack up. Tired ass hoes on my page trying to track us. Brand new chain, city girls going platinum. I keep a baby Glock, I ain't fighting with no random, period. You bitches weak, is you serious? I let him taste the pussy, now he acting all delirious. Did a dash in the rubber like his face is furious. You see my number in his phone, now you acting curious. He gon' buy me Gucci if I ask for it He a classy nigga walk his time for it I bet your little sister wanna look like me I bet your little brother wanna fuck on me Hood bitch, good pussy, I ain't average, um He can't come around without that kind, bitch, um Pop a pussy bitch quick like a bubble gum I ain't never worry, I just do it for fun Act up, you can get smashed up Act up, you can get smashed up Act up, you can get snatched up. Dirty ass, yes, baby girl, you need to back up. JT on the track, and you know I'm by my paper. Pussy sweet, pussy tight, so he caught a lifesaver. If your ass a broke nigga, hell nah, I can't ditch it. If your ass a rich nigga, I'ma fuck you till you ain't one. If that nigga scammer, I'm turning to a dancer. I make it clap like he got the right answer. Sit on it with man and sit it harder than a hammer. He want a freak, pussy pink, breast cancer. Oh, you like big, but why I like big bucks. I don't care about your chain, nigga, or your big truck. You getting it, but if you spinning it, give a fuck what a nigga got if he ain't giving it. Bad ass bitch, bad attitude. Yeah. Nails done, hair done, ass too. Yo, baby, that he fucking me and sucking me. He don't answer you, bitch, that's because of me. Act up, you can get smashed up. Act up, you can get smashed up. Act up, you can get smashed up. Dirty ass ass, baby girl, you need to back up. From Florida, that is Act Up by City Girls. Today, I'm joined on this show, uh, Out of the Box by Black Lives Matter activist Ray McKesson. His book, The Other Side of Freedom, is being peddled locally by Bloomsbury. It's a collection of essays reflecting on his activism, and you can cop it at your local seller of literature. So I was raised by my father. My uh, mother left when I was three. She came back when I was 30. My father raised us. My great-grandmother lived with us until I was 11 uh, and my sister. So uh, both of my parents were addicted to drugs. So I grew up learning about addiction. I grew up like seeing people at their worst moments and seeing them recover. I, I grew up seeing the power of community and what that looks like and how it can heal people. Uh, and then I uh, went to college and then became a teacher. What did that mean situationally, like after your mother left and your dad was addicted to drugs? What did that mean for the the sort of environment were you in? Were you, were you safe? 
for example? Did you feel safe as a child? Yep, I felt safe and loved. You know, I think that's one of the things that we sort of have to push people on is that, like, we think about addiction as a um, as a public health issue, right? So uh, how do we set people up so they can get the services and the healing they need? Luckily, my father got it when I was three, right? When they divorced, he went into recovery and has been fine ever since. Uh, but not everybody is able to find the services that they need because in so many places we treat addiction as a crime. Uh, but we have to treat it like the public health issue that it is. Uh, Baltimore is a hard city, so the city is not you know, one of the safest cities in America, and that is structurally. like what does it what does it mean when we choose these communities of black people? We intentionally under-resource them. We intentionally pack them into small conditions, and then we wonder why there's crime and violence, not. Uh, that those conditions will necessarily lead to crime and violence, but what do you do when you have families of people who need to eat and they have no food or no resources, right? Like these are things that happen by design and that is the city of Baltimore. So that has been hard. How were you able to overcome growing up with a lack of resourcing like like in that situation? Because some people don't, right? Yeah, I think a lot of people actually do fare relatively well. I think we're just not great storytellers about their stories. I, you know, I think I've been blessed and have been able to tell this story. But, I, you know, I think I was one of many people that uh, so many adults who didn't necessarily have to pour it into me. So many teachers. I was in student government. So many. I was in, like, these after-school things. And so many adults uh, just, like, loved on me, right? Like, they created space for me. They pushed me. They challenged me. So I think about Miss Rupal. Uh, who was the high school yearbook teacher who I was very close to. And I remember being in year, I was in yearbook every year. And she would she was one of the people that was like, I think you can do this, but you can do better, right? She just like was very tough on me, but in like a very loving sort of way. I think about some of my math teachers that like really, I think about some Mr. Hamill, who's an English teacher. Uh, so many teachers like really pushed me and just like, saw something in me that I didn't always see in myself, and that was really powerful. A college, the same thing. I think about uh, there were some professors who were just like, I want you to be better, right? Like, I want to, like, push you to be the best you can be. And I think that Baltimore, just like a lot of cities, are cities where there are so many adults who, like, want to and are willing to do those sort of things. Because my father, bless his heart, like, he didn't go to college. Yeah, He didn't know. Like, once I got to college, it's like he, that was an experience that he just didn't know, Right. Uh, but there were so many other people who did know and who were willing to help me when I got stuck or help me uh, when I needed context-specific advice. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people for whom that is true. You know, love goes a long way. Um, can I ask you about the day that you reconnected with your mother? I don't. Uh, we haven't reconnected. I haven't reconnected. So, but you've um, reestablished some sort of connection with her. You, you've 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 at least seen her. Right? I've After seen a, her, a, yeah, yeah. A, almost not knowing her for your whole life. Yeah. How how does that work? I think Joan. It's like this thing where you know you see her, and she is clearly so. Um, she clearly is so hurt by her absence that it's like this weird thing to be like. Both Teray and I are also very hurt by the fact that she left. And disappointed, uh, but but thirty years old now. It's like a. It's hard to to berate her about it because she also looks really hurt by it, right? So she is sort of. She's back in the city. Teray has seen her a couple more because Teray Teray's kids. So Teray has tried to bring the kids around a couple times so that, that like they can see Joan and um and establish some sort of relationship. I think that for Teray and I, she is. Like, I, she'll never be that, like, mother figure. You know, my father was great and, like, filled in as much of the roles as he could. Um, 
yeah, so we don't look to her for that, you know? And I hope that one she did read the chapter in the book, I know, because she's made a message being like, read the book. Um, and one day I hope that we'll like sit down and like have that conversation soon. So you've seen her like maybe once? Mm, I've seen her a couple of times. I mean, she's like around. It's not like, I'm not like avoiding her, you know? Right, it's not, like, right. A, uh, she is still, she's like still close. My grandmother on my father's side has dementia and my mother is like around. Because they all knew each other. They were like, my parents had us when they were young. They all like, they all grew up together, you know? So, like, my family still, um, and my father included, like, still love her. Like, they know her. Yeah, you know, it's hard because we don't know she left, right? So, like, we didn't grow up with her. Whereas they remember her, like, before the addiction, you know? So there's still a lot of love and memory for Joan uh, from, like, my aunt and uncles and my grandmother. You know, like, those sort of people who just, they knew her way before, like, I was even an idea, you know? Another um, vein that runs through your story. Some people would call it an intersection. Other people would call it just another whole lot of shit to deal with is um, the fact of being gay. Um, you, you call it coming out of the quiet rather than um, coming out of the closet. How, how old were you when you had to start coming to terms with that? Mm, I think I think you know, I write about this in a book, but I think I like... The time that I like came out, came out of the, and I talk about the difference in the closet and the quiet. The closet is this idea of like hiding. The quiet is like, you know, I knew just because you didn't know doesn't mean it didn't happen or wasn't real. Uh, you know, I was, I loved somebody in college and didn't know what to do. I was like, I needed like not even relationship advice, but I needed like feeling advice. And I called my dad and I was like, you know, it's funny. I either call him Calvin or I call him daddy because like, I don't know. That's what we always called him. Uh, so I called Calvin and I was like, hey, I need some advice. Da, da, da. And like in the conversation, it was clear it was a boy. And he just like rolled with the punches and it was like, here we go. You know, it was like a very simple, that was very simple. So that was good and, and easy in that regard. Um, and Calvin's great. And Teresa's always been great. So yeah, it wasn't, I was late. It was late. I didn't, I didn't date. I didn't, you know, I did student government. I was like very focused on like, here are the goals I have and here's what I want to do. So I didn't really date until, like, I graduated from... I was a teacher. I was, like, 20... I don't know, three. It's, it's pretty wonderful that it didn't create problems with your father. Has it created problems for you in other areas of your life, particularly as an activist and as someone with a profile? Sometimes. You know, I, homophobia is a hell of a thing. Um, I think that one of the things that I, I've experienced that I write about that, that is sort of interesting is that there are people who are homophobic but like me like I become like a respite for their hate that they're like you know what Dre please da 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 and you're like ah, I think you're sort of homophobic right like you don't really like gay people you just like the service I provide in this moment right like you like that I talk about the police and you don't have to or something like that uh, so I try to push people where I am you know like about the homophobia or transphobia or misogyny uh, it is hard sometimes there are people who as an activist who feel like I can never fight, I can never truly be transformational or like I, it never can be a, a big idea because I'm gay or, you know, like that becomes a thing. I'm pretty chill. Like I'm not, you know, people, I think expect some activists to be a little more hyper-masculine and I'm chill. Like I just, that's not a performance I need to do. So that becomes like a thing for people sometimes uh, to latch on to, but otherwise it's been good. It's been a long five years. In some ways I'm like tired, right? Cause like we've been, uh, going nonstop about this about an issue that has only gotten worse since we started, you know. Um, but yeah. All right. What can we play now? What track are we going to push into the airwaves today? We're going to do "Lions and Tigers and Bears" by Jazz Sullivan. And why are we playing Jazz Sullivan? Why are we going back to two thousand and nine? Because this is 
a great song and uh i'm not scared of lions it's just like a but i'm scared of loving you like i think it talks about um both the beauty and fear of love and and what that looks like and i think that in the work of resistance or activism or fighting for a better world um i think that there is a lot of fear of like loving something so much um that you're actually afraid i'm not scared of lions and tigers and bears but i'm scared of i'm not scared to perform at a sold out of bears but i'm scared of am i the only one who thinks it's an impossible task why it don't last is that too much to ask why do we love love when love seems to hate us sorry if i sound so filled with And I know you do, but this is from my experience and my conclusion only makes sense. Just cause I love you and you love me, it doesn't mean that we're meant to be. I can climb mountains, swim across the seas, but the most frightening thing is you.
Taking it back to 2009 there, some popping R&B, Lions, Tigers and Bears, Jasmine Sullivan. Uh, this show is out of, a bo- out of the box, and accordingly, it was brought in today by Duray McKesson. He's become a key figure in the Black Lives Matter movement, and he's also an author of a recently published collection of essays titled On the Other Side of Freedom. Um, you briefly mentioned your great-grandmother there in uh, the last section. She was, uh, she's mentioned quite a lot in the book and was obviously quite a big figure in your life. What's her story? So Nanny died when I was in a senior in college. Uh, she was a, um, she was a sharecropper when she was a kid and helped raise us from when we were three to 11 when I was from when I was three to 11. What, what is, what is sharecropping? Just, um, you know, for she someone like, in Australian context might not be so familiar like with. Post-slavery, uh, black people were essentially given jobs picking cotton. They just weren't slaves anymore. They weren't like technically enslaved. So they would pick, so like nanny would pick, uh, like pounds of cotton for like 10 cents or something like her and her family. And this is going on like right up, you know, to, to your great grandma's yeah, like, like, which 20s, is assumed. 30s. You right. Know? Okay. And then she became like a live-in, like a uh, like a nurse or like a maid to white people. So she like baked and made and like raised her kids and stuff like that. And then when she retired, she had been retired by the time I remember, like my earliest memories of her, she was always home. Like she was retired by then. Uh, and she was just like, she was sort of the mother figure that we had because my mother had left, you know? So she was who like, was at home every day. She made sure we did our homework. She walked us to school. She made dinner. Like she lived with us. She lived with us as my, my father lived with us and my great grandmother lived with us. So she was just always there. And then like, she's my father's grandmother and they were always really close. Yeah. So she was just like a big figure in my life because she like helped raise us. You know, we saw her a ton and my father worked a lot. Like he, he went from being like a stock boy, like stocking, uh, stocking the shelves at a supermarket to being like a part owner of this big company. So he worked a ton. So we were with him a lot on the week. I mean, we all lived together, but he was at work almost all the week and when we were in school. And so we saw him, he was home on the weekend. So we were always out, like we're like, I don't know, we did all these field trips and stuff with him on the weekends, but we were with her like every day doing homework until middle school. And then she left and he got married again. So we were with him all day. And, you know, it was interesting because we had never been with him. Like, he was, we, my great-grandmother was always there, sort of like the, she was the, like, hammer, you know? And then all of a sudden, she moved back in with my grandmother, and it was just us with my dad. And it was interesting because he, we just never been with him alone all day long, you know? And then all of a sudden, it was like, hey, and we missed her for a simple thing. You know, some stuff, like, he just had never had to cook for us like every meal because she was always there you know so then all of a sudden he would make like one meal a week he'd make like spaghetti on monday and enough for all seven days and you're like daddy i gotta like where is we need something else um so it was a crazy like teray and i joke about when all of a sudden it was just calvin because it was like you're like what are we doing you know I mean, I guess the reason I'm asking about the the lived experience of like very close generations to you, this is one and two generations removed from you, is that it kind of shows how recent this oppression is, how close it is in terms of history, but um, also how much change has happened. And I guess uh, I'm, I'm interested in like, how would um, the civil rights movement, for example, have 
affected the trajectory of the life of someone like your great grandmother or your father um and then you as a practitioner of change what does that what does that mean for you it did you know it is one of the the saddest parts of this experience that i get to live right now is that my great grandmother is not alive and that my grandmother has dementia you know because i remember being a kid and hearing them talk about civil rights and like they remember where they were when king was killed they remember where they were during the riots in Baltimore after King was killed, they like they we talked about those things way before I identified as an activist, uh, and it would be beautiful to be able to talk to my great grandmother now, like to even little things like, you know, I remember when you know we had cell phones back then, but like nothing like what we have today. It's like I would have loved to see my great grandmother process like just technology today, you know, like. Because she grew up, yeah, you know, my great grandmother could only write her name. Like that was, she like had to stop going to school because she had to work in the field. So like writing her name was like the only thing she could really write, you know? And to think about what she would have been able to access with technology today would be so, her world would just be so much bigger than the world she lived in, you know? Um, and even the way they thought about race, it's like, you know, they, what does it, both my grandmother and great grandmother like raised uh, and kept, they, took care of like rich white people you know and that is a life that like we just didn't we didn't have to do that but like the way they thought about race and the way they saw oppression and the way they saw people they loved who fought against the system get hurt or killed you know it's just so different so it is like one of the hardest personal things is to be an activist and to be able to do this work in such a global national way Um, and for the people who directly saw the worst of america in my family uh, they're gone it's hard I'm interested in the idea of the way they thought about race. Do you think that um, the way that that generation of um, African-American um, activists and, and just people living under these oppressive regimes um, would have thought about race differently? I mean, I think that they saw, they saw, you know, it's even when we talk to elders today who were in the civil rights movement is that there is a soberness with it that we didn't understand right when the protest ended because we we thought they were like a little jaded and then we sort of got it we were like what does it mean to almost die right for the things you believe in and then the world not change that quickly right and they lived through it so a lot of the civil rights leaders are like very quiet today the older people because they saw everybody get killed you know they saw all of their friends they saw all the people that they loved like get killed and destroyed you know and I think that that is like a very, I think my my grandparents fit into that mold of like, that you should fight for change. Uh, but like we saw everybody who fought like get destroyed, you know? I think that we have the benefit of like a little bit of naivete. I think we have the benefit of like technology that just allows us to, you know, the beautiful thing about the internet is that it accelerates the pace of everything. So you think about the 60s is like, they had to wait for the news to come on for to spread a message across the country. They had to wait for the radio show. We, I can talk to a million people whenever I want to, like at the drop of a hat, you know, they just couldn't do that. I could organize, I could get 2,000 people to show up at a corner by tweeting. They just didn't have that power, you know? So I think that we've seen the ability of the internet to just change the balance of power in incredible ways that like they couldn't even imagine. So even it's some, there's some older scholars in the country that we fight with because we said things like Twitter is the revolution in the beginning and people are like, how do you know, organizing is to, and it's like, you actually, you just, you don't know, like you didn't see what we were able to do. You didn't, you like, you know, what's interesting about Ferguson is for all the people that talk about it today, the majority of them didn't think it was worth it to come down. 
It wasn't worth it to come stand in the street. It wasn't worth it to participate in it. So they write about it with like a 50 foot pole, but they weren't there. They didn't, they didn't see the logic. They didn't see the way that Twitter really changed the landscape, you know? How do you think um, something like identity politics has uh, changed the way change making happens now um, for, for a movement like Black Lives Matter compared to the civil rights movement? Yeah, I'm always interested in the way we talk about identity politics. I don't know any politics that isn't the politics of identity. That the way that the world has been set up means that we, especially people of color, for for mostly worse, have had to deal with the impact of colonization that is the ultimate identity politics. It is the ultimate politics of whiteness imposing itself on countries all across the world so if anything the politics that we engage in today are trying to undo like the most intense form of identity politics that has ever existed in this world that is white supremacy Mm. so we think about like politics in general it is a it is a conversation about influence and power and how we shift the balance so all of that work is a politics so any any law about education or about funding there's no law or policy that is neutral with regard to the identity of the people it impacts I worried that when we use phrases like identity politics it sort of suggests that like there are some politics that are not about identity and then there are all these things that are about identity whereas like the way we've seen it work out is that like every single thing that happens in this world uh, functions a loss across some sort of axis of socioeconomic status uh, sexual orientation or race but I mean I suppose the um, the loudest critique is that the, there would be the politics of class um, to differentiate between the politics of identity and then the politics of identity can sometimes break down because people just because they share an identity um, doesn't mean they necessarily agree wholeheartedly (coughs) has that been something that you've experienced for example in Black Lives Matter I mean I know that there are like I mean there's obviously like there's a very obvious critique from the right and that's going to happen there's going to be a resistance but there's also critiques from the left from inside the movement Um, how do you grapple with that I don't grapple with it. I don't think it's like, I don't, I think it's like a little intellectually dishonest. Like, here's the thing is if the outcomes weren't so disproportionate to people of color, then I'd be more interested in like the philosophical conversation. But everything we track, everything we measure, the outcomes are so targeted against people of color, even in your country, like First Nations people are disproportionately the brunt of everything that happens. And there's one reading of that that's like, wow, it's accidental. And then there's another reading that's like, wow, that's intentional, right? And when I think about class, I'm interested in class. We should talk about money. Money matters, right? But even the class identifiers, it's no way to talk about that without talking about the way that race has impacted uh, the way class functions, right? So what does it mean that in America, poor white people, uh, high school dropouts have more wealth than black college graduates? It's like that just is a that is a function of race, right? So we can talk about the relationship between uh, class and and like race. That is interesting, but what is happening is that like race is actually the axis by which class is functioning in the first place. All right, we've got to pull back and go back to DJing. What track should we play now, Deray? What are we gonna do for our second last song today? Mm. We're just going to do Be Your Girl by Teacher Moses because it is a hopeful song. Um, it's sort of like a little messy, but I like it. And I, I think that the beat is uh, the beat is fun. Don't know if you got a girl. Don't mean to disrespect, but thoughts of you rule my world. I even dream of you, I swear. Visions of you.
Moses and Be Your Girl, those grooves coming from Black Lives Matter activist and author Deray McKesson. He's in Australia at the moment, telling stories from the front line of the resistance against police brutality in the US, pushing the good message of truth and justice, and here on Out of the Box for a few moments longer. Deray, where were you on that November day when Donald Trump became president of the United States? I was in the saddest room in America. I was in the Hillary campaign. Uh, like the room I was in the room like this it was like me Lady Gaga sitting on the floor it was like this Celine um, and not Celine Lord Cher we're all like, Cher was we're there. all sitting watching on TV <laughs> what um, was Cher's reaction everybody was you know because the way it ha- the way it the way the presidential race happens in the country is uh, the news will have a map of all the states and then the because of the time zones and because every state gets to decide the election timing itself, uh, the states close at different times. So one by one, this, the news will show the state is like red or blue, and then we'll see. So you see the early returns come in, and you're like, okay, these states we thought would be red, which is the Republicans. These states we thought would be blue, the Democrats. And then the numbers got a little fuzzy, and you're like, okay, this is like a little closer than people thought. So everybody's like, okay. And then you like have this moment where you're like, oh my god, he's gonna win. But then even the new, everybody was shocked. Like even the newscasters shocked. So they like, there's a certain number that you have to get of the electoral college to win, and it just started getting really close. And everybody's like, "Oh, this is bad." So I'm getting calls from reporters being like, "Do you have a plan if he wins?" And I'm like, "He's not gonna win." So no, you know, just like, and then all of a sudden he wins, and we are literally just sitting there. We're stunned. Everybody's stunned, and because it was the official Hillary thing, um, Hillary was there. Like she was in this. She was holed off in this room. And then, and then she wouldn't concede. So we just waited, you know, and Podesta, the campaign chairman came out, made an announcement, essentially being like, go home an hour later. And we just like waited. It was like a very, you know, and it was one of those things too, where like we had been in the street for such a long time. So all these people, then the report, you know, people wanted comments and da da. And it's like, I don't have a plan. I don't, I like did not wake up today thinking about this. I'm not like organizing a boycott or rally. Like I am taking this in just like everybody else is taking it in. And the good thing is that so many 
activists emerged from that moment. So many good people, the Indivisible Project, like so many things came about that have done incredible work. Um, was it a was that day a political catastrophe for you? Like it was for many people on the left. Did you see that as like? I mean, it was bad, undeniably. I think that what was hard is that, you know, a lot of people participated in destructive logic in 2016. So there were, like, I supported Hillary publicly in one of the biggest newspapers in the country, and um, people tore me apart. You know, it was like, how could, how could I sell out? And, you know, she's going to win anyway. You're wasting your political capital and all this stuff. And then she loses, which we thought was possible, which is why I would stick my neck out there for her in the first place. Um and a lot of people haven't like ever sort of had a mea culpa for those destructive thoughts that happened in the first place. So it was devastating. But we we were never under a delusion that that his winning was impossible. We thought it would be crazy. We thought it'd be hard. Um, but a lot of people participated in vilifying her, and a lot of people participated in the logic that said that like the president doesn't matter. So a lot like more people than you can ever imagine today, because he's so crazy. Uh, participated in this language that was like, you know what? The only politics that matters is local. So, like, don't even worry about the president. The president doesn't matter. The president can't do anything. Has Trump made activism easier or harder? Mm, I hate to give him any credit for anything. I think that sure, what, sure. I but think, I mean, in some sense, having like a caricatured, extreme version of you know, you couldn't get more of an anathema to the Black Lives Matter movement or what it stands for as Trump in the White House has maybe made things clearer in some respect as to what the situation actually is. I think that Trump uh, has made the pain that people feel more overt than it's ever been, especially for white people. So there are a lot of white people who before Trump was sort of like, the country's great. And then all of a sudden, Trump is just so wild that like you can't really get away with that. Like you, That's like a wild thing to say. He's like putting kids in cages, like all this stuff. So I think that the threat is just more overt. So it's easier for people to be, it's easier for people to latch onto an issue because like the issue's on the news all day. I think that uh, the hard part is that he does so much damage that you just can't track it. In spite uh, of all that, your message is still one of... Uh, optimism and hope as as stipulated in the title of the book but where do we go from here what happens now you know when we say the system is broken some people say oh no it was designed to be like that and our takeaway is that it was designed right people made it up because people made it up we can make something better when they think about hope hope is a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's and like i believe that like the reason i continue to do this work is because like i think we'll win i think it'll be hard i think it'll be intense i think that we will like sacrifice even more than we've done today but i think we'll do it i think we'll win when i think about where we go it's like really focusing on structures and systems that like what we now know is that there's a set of laws, policies, and practices that guarantee the outcomes that we see, that this isn't about good or bad people mostly. It's about like, how do we make the system work? And that to me is like the next five years. We we did the awareness work. We did it. Like we changed the conversation. People are talking about it. But now it's like, how do we get people to realize that they are smart enough and have the power to like change things at the local level in ways that will really make an impact? Well, with that, what can we play? To- we'll do Yellow Lights by Harry Hudson. Um, because it's really oh, it's like um, meet me under yellow lights yellow it's just like a good song <laughs> well with that of course as every week an enormous thank you to my producers Bree Jones and Nicole DiPaolo and Deray McKesson thank you so much for being boom, my guest boom 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 we did it box. we did it don't cut the lights just take it slow I'm moving fast we've lost control but I feel safe with you 
Love is brave, but I've been scared. I look around, see no one there, and still feel close to you. Cause my life is like a bedroom door. Don't leave me in when you feel low. Cause I might make a move. So what should I do in the darkness of you when you light up my moon? From July until June, what would I do if there wasn't a you? Would you sing about me like I sing about you? You're my sunshine, you're my rain, you're all I've lost yet all I've gained. If I must tell the truth. Hello darkness, goodbye light. I'll kiss you close and hold you tight if that's alright with you. I'm coming back if that's alright with you. So come on back if that's alright with you. So what should I do when I'm dark and I'm blue? When you light up my room from July. Till June, what would I do if there wasn't a you? Would you sing about me like I sing about you? 'Cause all I see are yellow lights, yellow lights, yellow lights. Meet me under yellow lights, yellow lights, yellow lights. We're burning through these yellow lights, yellow lights. Yellow lights when I'm through. What should I do in the darkness of you when you light up my moon from July until June? What would you do if I died before you? Would you sing about me like I sing about you? This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com/podcasts.